Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Kurenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Jeffrey Ding. Jeffrey Ding is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford's Center for International Security and Cooperation, sponsored by Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, as well as a research affiliate with the Center for the Governance of AI at the University of Oxford. His current research is centered on how technological change affects the rise and fall of great powers, with an eye toward the implications of advances in AI for a possible U.S.-China power transition. He also puts out the excellent China AI newsletter, which is sometimes, most times, weekly translations of Chinese-language musings on AI and related topics. And that's over at chinaai.substack.com. You should check it out. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Jeffrey. Yeah, thanks, Andre. Thanks for having me on. All righty. So uh, to get into it, we always ask this one question, which is how did you get into AI, being interested in AI, and how did you wind up doing research, in this case, related to AI, in this interesting interdisciplinary realm? So I started researching AI as an intern at the Center for Governance of AI at Oxford. Mm. I was a master's student at the time, and my master's thesis topic was on a completely different subject. I was looking at China's efforts to build up its soft power in Africa and part of its uh, what some people call its charm offensive in various African countries. So a completely unrelated topic. And I had been interested in AI and AI policy because there was a student group at Oxford called the Rhodes Artificial Intelligence Lab. And their whole concept was pairing people like me with no technical background, uh, with machine learning PhD students and mashing them together in teams that would consult for other organizations on how to apply AI for social good. So one of our projects was applying uh, deep learning to a sleep apnea diagnostic model and partnering with University of Maryland, a professor there at the medical school who gave us data and helped shape that project. So that, that got me hooked on AI and I was looking for more opportunities and it was just so fortunate that GovAI was also looking for people with uh, Chinese expertise at the time. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. Um, so that's probably around, what, 2016, 2017? Yeah, 2017, exactly. Got it. Yeah, it just seems like an interesting time because, you know, obviously AI really took off and in 2010s in a rather, you know, meteoric fashion so it's i think it has been one of the interesting things uh to observe is a lot of technology is kind of ahead of the policy and with a lot of things like facial recognition and self-driving and so on so imagine for you know policy experts that's an area where there's a lot to look into now <laughs> yeah like i i think of like let's if i were doing my master's in like 2001 um, or like in the 
or like 1999, I might have been interested in nanotechnology because that's when the hype cycle for nanotechnology was at its peak. And yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. 2017, a year after uh, AlphaGo defeats Lisa Dole, uh, in in the Go match, I think that sparked a lot of interest from uh, people like me who weren't as in tune with the technical technical developments in the field. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And before that, what made you interested in studying? You know, um, I guess China as a whole and and these sort of socioeconomic uh, political aspects. So I think that stems back from involvement in high school policy debate. So we would have year-long resolutions on topics like should the U.S. federal government substantially increase its exploration and or development of space? And there would be various plans to like build solar-powered satellites or enhance our asteroid deflection technology, but inevitably there would be debates about U.S.-China relations, U.S.-China competition in technology. And so I became more interested in the topic from there. I was also born in Shanghai and moved to Iowa City when I was three. So growing up Chinese-American, there's sort of a personal tie um, to both countries. And so I think maybe the the interest even stems further back in sort of my personal story. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it's interesting, I think, when, you know, the seeds for your eventual PhD are planted early. In my case, I did this like robotics club in high school and then eventually wound up back in robotics, you know, after some other areas. So that's a fun, uh, fun road. Yeah. We're always trying to get back to the stuff we did as kids, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the stuff that really excited you once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All righty. Well, um, with that kind of out of the way, I was thinking we'll just kind of mostly go over some of your publications uh, and some of your, let's say, more AI-focused ones that are a little more approachable, <laughs> at least for me. And starting out with, I think, your first uh, major uh, publication I saw is deciding China's AI dream, uh, the context, components, capabilities, and consequences of China's uh, strategy to lead the world of AI from 2018. Um, which I think you are like the only author of, uh, with like some thanks. <laughs> that was impressive because it's like a 44 page brief. So before we get into it, I kind of want to ask, it starts with a context section. And I also would like to ask for context before 2018, you know, I know what happened with AI in the US, you know, deep learning started blowing up and then Google and Facebook and everyone got into it at universities, etc. But what was the case of China, like, uh, you know, 2000s to 2010s kind of when did research and industry really get into it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, kind of pushing us to look beyond the 2017 plan, which was when AI was elevated to a national strategic priority by the Chinese State Council, which is their cabinet-like body. I think part of it goes even back to you could say 2006 with the national medium and long-term plan. That plan really 
pushed this idea of indigenous innovation and trying to ensure that China has its own independent innovation capability in different strategic technologies. And then after that, you've also had specific technology plans like the AI one. So we have similar ones in biotechnology, nanotechnology. And so in some sense, um, also internet plus technologies. So in some sense, the AI plan is a follow on to that legacy of central technology planning, centralized industrial policy. In another sense, though, the, the AI plan is really following in the wake of what companies, provincial governments were already doing in AI. So a couple years before, companies were already making large investments in AI and provincial level governments, city governments had already set up their own AI funds. So in, in some way, the, the central AI plan in July 2017 was more sending a broader signal, kind of collecting everybody's forces and trying to channel that towards a more national effort. Got it. Yeah. And, and to recap, this is talking about the state council's 2017 AI development plan, which I think in part was why this was written. So getting into that, um, yeah, talking about the context, I guess, can you summarize sort of where China is at right now with AI and what this AI development plan sort of put out as the major goals? Yeah, so the top line benchmarks set out in the plan are for China to reach certain levels of gross output scale of their AI industry and AI-related industries as well. So there are these different benchmarks set out for 2020, 2025, um, 2030, I think. And at some point, the goal is for China to become a leading innovation center in AI. And then the rest of the plan also includes a bunch of different sort of wish list type items that they would like to achieve in AI uh, that includes setting up a system of standards, system of better systems of, of ethics and regulation in AI. It doesn't go into too much specifics on those. More so, I think the goal of the plan is to sort of send that broader signal I was talking about. And then later on, you had different provinces come up with their own plans that adopted a lot of the language of the national plan. And I think over, I think um, most of the provinces have issued their own provincial level plans. So that's, that's sort of the, that's sort of the main uh, components of the plan in terms of where China sits right now. It's, it's really hard to measure whether they've reached even the 2020 benchmark because it's it's difficult to tell what exactly is a core AI industry and what is what are AI related industries. Mm -hmm. But I think there have been efforts to try to calculate that, and by most measures, they've reached those goals. Um, to what extent it's useful to to measure uh, AI related industries and make that distinction is up for debate. Uh, and I think 
they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily care about the exact size of the AI industry, more so that there has been more investments in the space, that there is a, the, the overall strength of the AI ecosystem, however you measure it, um, is, mm. is growing. So I think on, on those indicators, the, the plan has achieved its goals. Got it. Interesting. And and just to put out some broader context, I guess it should be said that U.S. and China, China is very close to U.S. perhaps, maybe in second place or, or very close to in terms of uh, having a lot of AI output. So there's a ton of AI research, there's many companies putting investment into it. So that's for our listeners kind of broader context where, you know, as a researcher, a ton of research comes out of China and also there's many, many companies like Google and Facebook over at China doing a lot of investment. Yeah. And sort of a, a good way to think about that is a lot of the first movers in AI are big internet companies because they have so much data and so much about access to talent as well. So if you just think of the world's top internet giants, it's mostly U.S. companies and Chinese companies like Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, JD.com. So these are also the same companies that have large AI labs. And exactly what Andre is talking about, those investments in publications and research outputs and technology outputs. Yeah. So also to set a bit of a broader context, in the intro you had this nice little table uh, about demystifying China's AI dream uh, that kind of laid out a few uh, myths having to do with, you know, top-down planning, the arms race, discussion about AI ethics. So, yeah, before getting into more details, maybe it would be good to go over that a bit and, and go into some of the myths that people over here might have about AI in China. Yeah, I think there's a couple of myths that we've touched on a little bit in the sense that the plan itself sends the signal, but it's not a monolithic top-down approach to technology policy. In fact, there's a lot of bureaucratic infighting around implementation of the plan. Over 15 different government offices have been tasked with implementing the plan. There's historical rivalries between entities involved in science and technology policy, like the Ministry of Science and Technology versus the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. So this isn't a seamless process where there's a top-down directive and everything falls in line. There's a lot of messiness involved with the process. And in fact, sometimes that messiness is a good thing. So a lot of the implementation of the plan will come through a more decentralized fashion with provincial-level governments, city-level governments dispersing funds. And that might be good in the sense that it creates a more innovative environment, allows more competition. And especially for an emerging technology like AI, where there isn't a set trajectory yet, and the field is still constantly evolving. Another myth that I was trying to unpack is this perception that China is leading the world in AI. And I took an initial first cut at trying to measure AI capabilities just looking at different drivers like access to data, access to computing hardware, the overall 
state of the talent base in AI and just taking a look at those different indicators, it was pretty clear to me that the U.S. was still the leading AI ecosystem. And lastly, I was interested in the discussion about AI ethics and safety in China. And I think at that time, the perception was there was nothing happening. And part of that was because we weren't necessarily reading Chinese language documents and having that translation pipeline. So as I've been doing this more, I realized there is a pretty diverse and robust discussion of AI ethics and safety. Of course, there there are unfortunately some topics that are just off limits and there's there's censorship of certain topics like using AI to disproportionately target ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. Um, but in other areas like consumer privacy, opposition to facial recognition, there has been a lot of robust and vigorous discussions. Yeah, and, and we'll get back to that later. There's been some fun developments in that just recently. So I guess, um, yeah, this is a pretty broad work, deciphering China's AI dream. And I think actually anyone interested could look it up and read it. It's it's fairly approachable for even you know non-policy people like myself. Uh, but um, just to get into a few of the more details that I found interesting, for instance, um, you have a section on uh, capabilities where you talk about sort of where um, China is at. And yeah, there's a few different things there, you know, hardware, data, etc. I'm kind of curious about the discussion on algorithm development is being good, but not having some kind of innovation level. Uh, and yeah, what your take is on that, maybe even comparing to with US in terms of being able to create new AI models, etc. And, you know, where that is. Yeah, I think in in terms of autonomous independent development, I think there's a relatively sharp gap between the US and China in terms of developing the fundamental models, the sort of the, the breakthrough innovations, if you will. So we see that with large language models where you have OpenAI's GPT series, and then now, uh, a year later, you have a lot of uh, Chinese companies and labs developing their own versions of GPT-3 based on Chinese language and potentially more oriented towards commercial applications. So I think there you see uh, some of the divide. But also, one key point that I wish I had stressed in that report, and I I want to stress more in my future research is when we think about who is producing these fundamental innovations, oftentimes it's not contained within national boundaries. So one of the biggest, if not the biggest innovation in AI of the past 10 years was probably the ResNets paper, uh, developing residual networks. If you look at the four co-authors of that paper, they were all based at Microsoft Research Asia. Uh, and sure, it's a U.S. company, but the base is in Beijing, China. Um, all the researchers are ethnically Chinese. Three of them have gone on to found or work on Chinese computer vision startups, Momenta. Two of them went to MegV. And the fourth 
came to Facebook in the U.S. and leads a lot of Facebook's AI research efforts. So that goes down in the books as a U.S. innovation if you're tracking scientometrics and bibliometrics. But if you look deeper, that's a that's a U.S. Sino U.S. China collaboration to create that fundamental advance that's really moved forward the field of deep learning. So sometimes we have to dig a little bit beneath the surface to get at those uh, connections. Mm, yeah, interesting. And uh, that touches on something that is another interesting topic that you also went into uh, the so-called AI arms race that we'll uh, touch on in a bit. But I guess just to wrap up this discussion of China's AI dream, you finish out with the consequences section where you talk about some of these aspects of you know, implications for AI and uh, military and, and economy and, and things like that. I guess... Um, did you yourself have any sort of major takeaways or things that you discovered writing this paper? Yeah, I think on the on the consequences side, one takeaway was going in, I had read a lot of the literature on AI and national security. That was sort of the the main topic, military applications of AI, AI and a potential revolution in military affairs where it produces this new war-winning weapon that changes the battlefield. Uh, when I was thinking more about the consequences and, and analyzing the consequences for the report, what came away for me was that the economic aspect, economic competitiveness, economic productivity is really the central driving force of a lot of China's efforts in AI, in part because one of China's, in order to have that military power in order to have the power to govern, uh, those are both founded on sustaining high economic growth rates that gives the Communist Party performance legitimacy. It also is a fungible form of power that feeds into all these different areas. And also China, one of my main China's main worries is not being able to escape the middle income trap where it's never able to get to a higher level of productivity, a higher level of value add in terms of its manufacturing capabilities, um, fear of being stuck in just doing the assembly and packaging of high-tech items rather than doing the independent innovation uh, of the key components that actually generate the royalties and licensing, licensing fees. So all of those combine led me to update more towards economic competitiveness as a central driver of China's AI strategy. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I think, yeah, a lot of people are worried about AI and military and AI, you know, and robotics, but having followed it myself, I think that's at least a, a bit narrow. I mean, I, I, there haven't been many examples of, you know, cutting edge AI necessarily revolutionizing anything yet, uh, but there's a lot of other things worth tracking. And uh, yeah, moving on to touch again on what we said in terms of sort of comparing the power of AI in China and, you know, who is better, etc. You later had this essay in the Foreign Affairs magazine called Beyond the AI Arms Race, America, China, and the Dangers of Zero-Sum Thinking. And you were a co-author on this, and it was 
kind of addressing this book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee, which is a very interesting read about kind of AI in China and doing a lot of analysis on different aspects. So, yeah, could you just, I guess, do a high-level uh, overview, summary of what that was all about for readers, listeners? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So this was a co-authored work, as you mentioned, with uh, Remco Zwetslut, who is the lead co-author on this, and Helen Toner. We were yeah, interested in Kaifuli's book, and it had garnered a lot of press and attention and provides a really uh, insightful look at the startup ecosystem in China and sort of an insider's perspective on the AI ecosystem from one of the leaders in that field. Uh, yeah, so for some context, Skyfully has been involved in several major companies and now has a venture capital that is super big. So he is, he's certainly uh, a person to speak to us. Exactly. And and sort of that, that expertise um, was... Really, I think that expertise gave him the platform to talk about China's AI ecosystem from personal experience and kind of recounting his personal experience, uh, his personal story, and giving a more human face to some of these entrepreneurs behind these Chinese AI companies and startups was really great. Where we had a disagreement, or where we were trying to push back on in terms of this essay, was twofold. The first is this idea that uh, China is the Saudi Arabia of data and, and this idea that data is the new oil and data will mean that China uh, will lead the AI revolution. And I think there are a lot of angles to unpack this. So it's even in my previous report, when I track data, I only look at mobile phone users, right? So China, yes, does have a very, very dense and large mobile phone ecosystem. Uh, but unlike oil, data is not transferable to other domains. So just because you have the most mobile phone users doesn't mean you're going to lead in autonomous vehicles. And, you know, all of everything, every advantage of data is going to be application specific and it's not just about quantity it's all about it's also about the diversity of data the quality of that data and even now like a lot of applications are being built on synthetic data so being able to simulate and create your own data um, might also be dependent on algorithmic capabilities and research capabilities not just access to large amounts of data and people so we were trying to push back uh, on, on that framing of China being the Saudi Arabia of data. And, and the second point that we wanted to contest was just this larger framing of the U.S. and China as AI superpowers locked into this arms race. And I think one, one disagreement was this idea that there is a discrete countable object that we're racing over, which is often what the arms race analogy is calling back to, like who has more intercontinental ballistic missiles, who has more nuclear weapons. Whereas 
in AI, there really is not an equivalent for that. It's more about who is developing, deploying, sustaining AI development in a better way. It's hard to measure with just one discrete countable object that we're racing towards. And plus, I think there's a lot of dangers with that arms race rhetoric in the sense that it might lead to cutting corners on AI safety and ensuring sustainable development of AI and trustworthy AI. And lastly, it, this ties back to a point I was making about the interconnections between the two AI ecosystems. It's hard to, I think it's very difficult to frame this as a zero sum competition where one side wins any win on one side is going to cause the other side to lose because so many of the AI advances, as I was mentioning with the Microsoft research, uh, Microsoft research Asia work is that these advances are benefiting both sides. And sometimes it's hard to disentangle who is going to leap ahead in whatever arms race uh, due to one advance because of the interconnections between the two ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I've also seen this trend, I think, with a lot of people less aware of what's going on. It is very tempting to view this as a sort of competitive thing. And in the beginning of the article, you have this interesting note that before 2016, there were fewer than 300 Google results for AI arms race. And then by 2018, there were like 50,000. So this notion of AR's race did actually sort of take off and, and was cited by a lot of people. And so, yeah, as in terms of framing, uh, this did a good job of sort of arguing against that. One interesting aspect you also touched on uh, is Kaifuli had this idea of shifting from the age of discovery to the age of implementation. And China has a, a kind of uh, an edge in terms of making things work and speed and yeah, just execution uh, compared to the US. So can you say why he thinks China would have an edge because of it? And, uh, and what is this age of discovery, age of implementation? Yeah, so age of, uh, age of discovery goes back to what we're talking about in terms of independent breakthroughs in fundamental AI models. So if we're in an age of discovery, according to Lee, it's about which country's AI ecosystem can create these sort of fundamental breakthroughs. If we're in an age of implementation, it's more about which country is able to take those breakthroughs like GPT-3 and actually apply it to, say, like business case scenarios. So applying GPT-3 to a really efficient chatbot that is used across all these different industries to support streamlining logistics, management, customer service, things like that, and create, creating real commercial value. I think Lee's argument for China's advantage in the age of implementation um, rests A, on access to data, which we mentioned earlier, um, maybe more engineers, um, and also largely on this sort of startup culture that he's really attuned with. And a lot of people who have visited China, China's startup ecosystem also come away with this. It's like they're that somehow Chinese uh, engineers are just more willing to build things and scale things and deploy things. And I think oftentimes 
that they're only seeing the cherry picked examples of things that work. So, you know, we, we do see some of this idea of like China, China scaling things faster in food delivery, for example, maybe ride sharing, uh, maybe high speed rail. But other than that, it's hard to think of that many more examples. And then people don't think about the negative cases. So when we think about what needs to be scaled for AI to succeed, probably number one thing is cloud computing capabilities to decentralized AI services and allow small and medium companies to also benefit and develop their own AI applications, specializing on top of these um, more general um, algorithms. And China lags far behind the US in terms of cloud computing diffusion and scale and scaling that to be able to have companies from around the country have access to cloud computing capabilities. So I think I think there there's there's room to debate on who's actually ahead in the age of implementation. And then the last point I'll make is discovery might also be key to implementation. So having these cutting edge technical capabilities that are continually pushing the frontier that might also prepare you better to implement things. It's not just a seamless process of being able to take a discovery and implement it at scale. You also have to have some of the tacit knowledge of that big discovery. And that discovery might also have a lot of like organizational knowledge attached to it, where, where if you don't have that organizational knowledge, you, you might not be able to apply it at scale. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I found this this point pretty interesting cuz I think you know, a lot of maybe fundamentals are discovered, but I, you know, there's so much more <laughs> left to see that I, I thought saying maybe now in the age of implementation is interesting. And I found it also interesting that his argument rests on as he said this idea of culture where the Chinese startup uh, culture is just much more competitive, right? And people are much more intense and you need to really fight for it, uh, much more so in Silicon Valley, which probably is interesting to hear for people uh, who, you know, are not aware. But to some extent, I think that's generally agreed to more or less be the case. Would you say so? Yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've heard Silicon Valley say this too. Is like uh, Silicon Valley is dying out. There, there's no like sense of competition here anymore. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of the world is still trying to copy Silicon Valley. Chinese leaders come to Silicon Valley and try to set up their own Silicon Valley equivalents in China. Hanzhou's AI town and like you know Hanzhou's science and technology innovation zone came about in part because leaders of that city visit Silicon Valley. Um, and the, and it may be true, but I, I kind of like prefer data versus anecdotal. Mm-hmm. So give me some data um, on this. And even with China's sort of, if China's startup culture is more hardworking, you're actually seeing a backlash to that with like one of the examples was the 996 work schedule. You work from 9am to 9pm, six days of the week. And now there's a lot of backlash to that and um it, even if that you know so maybe that might be rolled back but even if it wasn't i'd question whether that's actually the most sustainable way to do good work so mm-hmm. um i think you know 
I'm not as um, I'm not as willing to just accept that as ground truth. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I think pretty good article again, very readable to non-experts. So you can look us up beyond the AI arms race, and also it goes a little bit into the other aspects of the book, uh, not to make it seem like that's the main thing. That's really one of several things it touches, and the book is is really interesting and worthwhile reading. Yeah, I think that's really important to stress. Like, I think our main arguments are not necessarily about the content of the book, but um, within the overall environment of how U.S.-China competition AI is being discussed, sort of it's easy for the book to then be framed uh, in a certain way. Uh, so I, I think that's the key is more about like, how do we frame things and how do we think about alternative ways of framing Um U.S.-China competition in AI. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so next up, uh, we have uh, another form of, uh, um, I guess, publication. You had a testimony in 2019 called China's Current Capabilities, Policies, and Industrial Ecosystem in AI. And we already touched to this to some extent of like where AI is at right now. So I guess we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper. So uh, first, you, you, I think you try to be less fuzzy, right, and, and be a little more disciplined in how you characterize the um, state of natural AI capabilities. So to start with, could you just cover those, those like three cross sections that you decide on? Exactly. So the motivation behind this was I was asked by this congressional commission to assess U.S.'s relative AI capabilities compared to China and used it as an exercise to update the AI potential index from deciphering China's AI dream, which was very fuzzy, which is a very rough first cut approximation. And now trying to divide and analyze national AI capabilities through three cross sections. And these three are one, how much are you inputting and outputting um, from AI investments? So inputs would be uh, things like R&D funding, um, the amount of talent that is being trained in AI-related fields. Outputs would be things like patents and publications. And then the second cross-section was different aspects of the AI value chain. So when we talk about AI, uh, you also have to talk about the sort of the fundamental drivers of AI, like AI open source software um, or chips. Then you have the specific um, technologies or the, the different models. And then finally, you also have how these things are realized into commercial products. So like the smart speaker system that actually contains the natural language processing capabilities. And then the third cross-section was because AI is this general purpose technology, it's always going to have different subdomains and different application areas. So you can't just judge off of one application area. You have to somehow take the distribution across all potential application areas from finance to transportation to surveillance to um, logistics and trying to get a sense of the broader picture there. 
So those were the kind of three ways I was trying to map out national AI capabilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so this is interesting. This getting a little more data-driven in some aspects. And I found especially this inputs and outputs um, framing interesting. And so I think you mainly focused on research papers and, and patents. And um, yeah, could you summarize what you found there? I think the main finding there was China has very impressive counts of publications and patents in AI when you just look at the raw counts. But uh, for a lot of these um, publications, they might not be that noteworthy, or you might have a patent that's um, that actually should just be one patent, but a company splits it up into three or a research organization splits it up into three because they need to boost their numbers to meet certain subsidy requirements or government incentives. So oftentimes those raw numbers are inflated when you don't control for quality. Um, and on a lot of metrics of quality, whether it's average number of citations per AI publication, whether it's um, total citations, um, which venues are you publishing in? China is actually um, sometimes even middling um, in, in some of those uh, indicators. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So the total number, I think, uh, exceed, you know, was the United States, for instance. But yeah, when you break it down, uh, that's it's not just about the raw quantity for sure. Yeah, and uh, I guess in the realm of these different layers of the AI value chain, uh, this foundation technology and application, did you sort of try to assess the capabilities of AI in terms of each of these aspects? And, and how does that really work? Yeah, so the aspect that I focused on is this fundamental layer. Because... In a lot of the Chinese white papers that I've been translating, they were pointing out to they were pointing out this fundamental layer as a key area of weakness, and we've seen that with semiconductors, with the U.S. Uh, using semiconductors as a point of leverage, using export controls to restrict um, sales of semiconductors and semiconductor components to China. And so that that is very top of the mind for Chinese policymakers. But the other aspect of this is um, these open source foundational models um, or the foundational software like Google's uh, TensorFlow, Facebook's PyTorch. Chinese companies and Chinese entities are trying to also develop these models because it it helps to put it bluntly, it helps you sell your products, right? People get used to um, coding and developing on top of that code base, makes them more likely to uh, maybe use the more specialized software in the future. It also lets you get access to free talent to build your code um, as people, um, you know, point out flaws in the code. And so it improves your own um, algorithms. So, this is seen as a key aspect of AI development in China. And I've translated a Chinese white paper on this topic that actually tries to measure 
where AI open source software is coming from. And the statistic that they cite is 66% of AI open source software is developed in the U.S. or by U.S. companies. So they point out that as a key weakness in China's AI ecosystem right now. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then lastly, you did have a discussion of the different subdomains of AI with respect to computer vision and NLP. And this is also interesting in yeah making it less let's say simplistic of like AI is better in US or AI is better in China. Uh, but in fact, AI is a lot of things and, you know, AI may be better in China in some ways, uh, but not in all ways. So yeah, I guess what are, what are the main points there and how does China excel in, in certain domains, but not others? Yes. Yeah, so I think what I was trying to question there is oftentimes the first line point of evidence for China's advantage in AI is facial recognition and uh, counts of facial recognition patents, facial recognition companies, the extent of facial recognition deployment, especially in smart surveillance applications. Um, but, you know, that we have to, we can't just look at one application vertical, right? Um, the U.S. has leads in autonomous vehicles with the, you know, the definitive leader in that space in Waymo. Uh, that might be one of the most lucrative application areas of AI. Uh, we also, I think the U.S. also has leads in a lot of like the business facing applications like enterprise AI using AI to improve business logistics, business management, sort of back end services that aren't as visible or conspicuous as consumer facing applications. So that was mainly what I wanted to push people to consider is the, the broader distribution of AI applications and AI as this general purpose technology. And when you think about general purpose technologies, historically, they've been associated with productivity growth because they produce all these spillovers across all these different fields. So actually, like having this lead in facial recognition and being able to surveil your population in a more fine-grained manner, that doesn't strike me as something that's like productivity boosting across all different fields. Mm -hmm. In fact, it might actually suppress innovation if people are more afraid. <laughs> so I, I, that's what I wanted to get across is showing that there's a more complicated, um, multifaceted picture here. Mm. Got it. And yeah, touching on that, uh, you brought up this general purpose technology aspect, which I think is a very kind of, even I've heard of it as someone really outside of policy, but for listeners who haven't, maybe that's a good point to touch on. What does it mean that AI is a general purpose technology and sort of what other technologies might be comparable in some sense? Yeah, the quintessential comparison is to electricity as the classic GPT. Um, generally, these technologies have three characteristics. First, they have a large scope for continual improvement to the point that there's almost a research paradigm associated with them. Um, second is they have, they, they, they can achieve pervasiveness. So, um, oftentimes that, you know, with general purpose technologies, 
a good way to think about that is you can attach the word ization to it or the, the phrase ization. So electrification, computerization, mechanization, um, where all these different processes in the economy can be, um, can be transformed by this GPT. And the third is they have a lot of technological synergies, <clears throat> synergies with other technologies. Um, so a, one way to think about that is biotechnology advances might not necessarily improve the AI field, but improvements in the AI field will actually spark other advances, complementary advances in biotechnology. Um, so those are the, the main three indicators we look at for GPTs. Yeah, and, and this is an interesting thing to acknowledge with respect to AI for sure. Uh, and that leads into, I guess, your most recent or one of your more recent, not most recent works that is talking about AI as a strategic technology. And you had this paper, I think, with logic of strategic assets from oil to AI, uh, talking about this notion of strategic technologies and sort of where AI is with respect to that. So yeah, maybe just quick summary, you know, is AI strategic technology? What is strategic technology? All that sort of thing. Yeah. So this paper, Logic of Strategic Assets, which was published in Security Studies past summer, is trying to answer this question of how should states, how should policymakers identify strategic technologies? Because we hear this label thrown around all the time, this or that is a strategic technology. China has various plans that we talked about earlier that are investing in strategic technologies. So why do states choose particular domains over others? What makes oil more strategic than like peanuts or like microchips more strategic than potato chips? And I think our answer is um, policy is quite simple. Actually, is that policymakers should focus on the technologies that the private market or individual military actors underinvest in. And we outline three logics and then apply them to AI to show that actually different aspects of AI are strategic in different ways, and and that invites various forms of policy responses. So the first strategic logic is the cumulative strategic logic. So this is where some technology domains, the doing, uh, the learning by doing gains, the first mover advantages, the network effects are so large that um, companies can't actually invest as much in their own capabilities as they would like. It just costs too much. So oftentimes you need state support and state subsidies. And we see this most obviously with the aircraft industry and European support for Airbus as a competitor to Boeing. Um, and these sort of f first mover advantages also exist in semiconductors. Um, as well, where if you're ahead on one generation of building a chip, it's very likely that will translate into you being ahead in the next generation. Um, the second area, the second strategic logic is infrastructure strategic. 
And this relates most directly to general purpose technologies in the sense because the benefits from these fundamental technologies are so widespread and so diffuse, it's hard for any private company to capture those fully. So they underinvest. And that's a pretty basic public goods um, insight that we're taking. But we actually apply it in the military sphere too. So things like radar technology had all these spillover benefits across different military units, Air Force, Navy, Army. Um, And Germany was the first to develop radar technology, but their Navy and their Air Force didn't cooperate and share the technology with each other. Um, So the the British were actually more effective in deploying radar because they opened up all these interconnections between different military services. And, And that's what these more infrastructural technologies demand is um, sort of the the ability to cross fertilize across different domains and having 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 the state potentially play a role in that. And then the third was dependency strategic. So sometimes technologies, the supply of these technologies are overly concentrated in one country. And that creates this vulnerability um, for for the state. Uh, the security externality for the state because uh, that supply could be cut off um, at any point, whether it's because of a political action in terms of a policy or whether it's just a natural accident, natural disaster that that cuts off that supply. Um, private companies aren't internalizing the, the national security risks of that supply cutoff. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, this is getting a little more, you know, um, let's say, um, uh, beyond my kind right. of understanding of policy and I'm, I'm assuming many readers, but there is, um, uh, beyond the paper, also an article in the Washington post titled Biden is worried about Chinese control of strategic technology, but which technologies are strategic, which is a fairly approachable read. Uh, and we should say also that this is co-written uh, with other authors yes. on the phone, not just but you, of course. Yes, yeah, so this is co. Yeah, this is co-authored with uh, Dr. Alan Defoe, um, yep. and that that was actually a product of a kind of a lot of talks and presentations and discussions with uh, colleagues at the Center for the Governance of AI as well. So yeah, definitely cross fertilization of ideas on that project. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just to touch on one more thing with respect to this one, uh, based on this article on the Washington Post, uh, you, I believe, also touch on sort of the current U.S. outlook on AI technology and sort of the uh, high-level um, strategy with respect to AI of the you know Biden administration and what was the Trump administration's uh, strategy. So yeah, wh- what <laughs> what are we doing here in the U.S. at the top level uh, and how are we viewing it? Yeah, so the U.S. is doing a lot of things. I think um, part of what we're trying to part of what we're trying to push on is. Um, we're advocating for a more comprehensive look at um, how to implement strategic technology policy. Uh, and there are aspects of kind of touching on these strategic logics when it comes to AI policy scattered at different places. So uh, Bureau of Commerce 
I believe is doing a supply chain review. Um, or I think President Biden actually issued an executive order to review supply chains in four critical areas, uh, including, I believe, batteries and semiconductors. Um, there's different efforts to pump more investment into AI to sort of develop these more foundational models. Uh, so that might speak to the infrastructure strategic logic. Um, and there, there are efforts to sort of um, boost semiconductor companies and try to ensure U.S. competitiveness in semiconductors as well. So that might speak to the cumulative strategic logic. I think our point was just to encourage the administration to have a more central coordinating body that is actually looking at all these logics um, in synergy and as a whole, and especially to look at trade-offs between the two log between different logics. So oftentimes, if you're trying to um, leverage something like export controls on semiconductors, right? That's leveraging the dependency strategic logic. China's dependent on the U.S. for semiconductors. Um, but if that restricts sales to China so much that semiconductors can't get those revenues back to compete in the next generation of chips, um, that means that because of the cumulative logic, um, they'll get out-competed by global competitors. So those are kind of the, the tensions that we're trying to push policymakers to look more at. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, really interesting to hear. Again, it seems like a lot of what you're doing is trying to get to more concrete explanations of why something is strategic or you know what is the current state of AI capabilities. Uh, so even for a <laughs> non-policy guy, it's, it's really cool to see that. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, being kind of informed by translating AI documents and, you know, papers and white papers and stuff like that, which takes us to your kind of side project that has been running on throughout a lot of this. Uh, so this is China AI, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a newsletter where you share uh, primarily translated uh, documents, papers, white papers, I think even articles from China on AI. And this has been running for like three and a half years now. <laughs> it started in March of 2018, which I found really impressive. So to start with, yeah, how did you get started with it? What made you want to, you know, do this, I would imagine, quite labor-intensive project? Yeah, it started with working on the Deciphering China's AI Dream report and reading some of these texts, including this co-authored book by Tencent and a key Chinese government think tank on AI strategy that no one had really translated or analyzed. So I was just sending translations of various chapters to uh, friends and colleagues at GovAI and FHI, Future Humanity Institute at Oxford. And people really liked them. So I just kept sending emails and then eventually it turned into a newsletter. So I think part of why I've kept it going so long is it's a nice way to stay disciplined in terms of reading Chinese language news and sources, because I do think there's this huge gap in terms of how much we understand about what's happening in China partly mediated by the fact that 
there's not a lot of Chinese language speakers um, or people that are doing translations um, of this type of work. So that was what got me started and what's keeping me going on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, it was interesting going back to the first uh, post where you pointed out that this there was this important uh, report by Tencent that you know seemed like it should be translated there should be an English version but there wasn't so yeah what sorts of things do you find uh, kind of don't get translated that you end up doing the work for and then you know which ones seem maybe like they should be out there for others to read uh, here and elsewhere yeah I think we're doing a much better job of translating key policy documents. And there's a lot of great organizations like uh, DigiChina here at Stanford, um, Center for Security and Emerging Technology in Georgetown that are doing these translations of official policy papers, official white papers. Um, the stuff I, I was also interested in doing is just a blog post, like people from me, but who are in China and write in Chinese language. And, I, and so I translate a lot of blog posts. I translate like Zhihu threads, which are basically just like Quora threads, but a lot of like Chinese technologists and um, AI experts will debate things in these threads. So I find a lot of that stuff interesting. It's just getting a better sense of what people like me in China are talking about, find interesting, are reading. And I think um, that provides a, a different lens into um, how Chinese people are thinking about AI and AI policy. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, as, as someone who has been running the gradient where we post these different articles and also, as someone who browses machine learning on Reddit, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it is fun to sort of be able to tap into what the community is talking about and thinking about. So I, I can see that as being very uh, worthwhile. And do you have any examples that come to mind of maybe just from a few recent editions of what sort of things specifically have come up that you found cool? Yeah, so most recent issue, uh, we're starting a series uh, looking at translating how uh, medical AI is being applied in China. So the most recent issue was looking at um, a layphone article that analyzed the history of IBM Watson and its Watson for Oncology service. So basically... Um, treatment recommendations um, for cancer um, as a service and Watson's experience in China, how political tensions and policy uncertainty affected Watson for oncology's rollout across different Chinese hospitals, other like cultural issues involved with that rollout and ultimately why Watson for oncology ended its services in China. Um, so that was a recent issue. Um, yeah, some of my favorite issues have also been nitty gritty white papers of like China's computing capacity and then also long form articles about the experiences of Chinese delivery drivers under the influence of algorithms and how the food delivery apps algorithms 
um, shape their incentives and cause them to do things like drive against traffic and run red lights and the, the dangers and the negative risks that come from um, these algorithmic systems. So that's a, that's a loose smattering of different past translations. Yeah. So I guess at a high level, we can definitely say it's not all sort of, you know, uh, policy stuff that's for people in your field necessarily. There's a lot of it that's interesting to anyone who just follows AI and, you know, wants to get a broader understanding of how it is evolving in the world and, and not just in the U.S. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And then um, another kind of side project or, or aspect of uh, your career I found interesting is that you're a lecturer at the Wilson Center Artificial Intelligence Lab. And it notes that you teach mid to senior level congressional and executive staff about uh, China's AI strategy. So yeah, coming from you know a less technical background, as you said, you started out in this, um, I guess, uh, club where um, you you know machine learning experts were talking to policy people. And I guess are you now doing kind of that as well of talking to policy people to inform about AI? Yeah, so the Wilson Center runs various technical labs for congressional staffers uh, and now also executive uh, branch staffers trying to keep them informed of things relevant to technology policy, AI policy. So yeah, I'm trying to do a little bit of that in terms of translating what China's ambitions are um, in AI to give policymakers a sense of that. I think they have other people who touch on the more technical aspects. So I'm not giving an overview of what federated learning is or stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to play a little bit of a role in bridging that information gap as well. Yep. And that's, that is pretty important. I think at least I think it's easy to have misunderstandings about AI you know, think that AlphaGo means that we're getting super intelligence in a decade or something. So yeah, I, I would be, I, I would hope that, you know, senior <laughs> level policy people have a decent understanding of general, you know, trends. And uh, just to wrap up, we touched on, you know, a lot of your, uh, uh, a lot of your work, most of it being a publisher work, but you do also have some things we didn't get into. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm curious, sort of, what are you working on now? And what is your kind of, what are you thinking about uh, going forward? Not even necessarily AI, but, you know, where is your research heading? Yeah, one of the things I'm thinking about working on right now is trying to think, is trying to think about how states would share AI safety technologies or cooperate on measures that would reduce AI accidents. And I'm looking at the historical case of permissive action links, which are electronic locks on nuclear weapons. So I'm looking at archival materials, trying to conduct interviews with people to unpack the decision-making behind whether the U.S. decided to share or not share 
these permissive action link technologies with other countries. Because you would think that these would reduce global accidents with nuclear weapons that have the potential to threaten global destruction, and everybody would be better off if everyone had permissive action links. But there was a more complicated story with that, um, and there were worries that sharing safety technologies might actually encourage countries to adopt um, more risk-acceptant postures. So if you had permissive action links, you might actually put your weapons on higher launch alert, which would create more um, risky scenarios for conflict escalation. So trying to unpack the, the complexities of sharing these safety technologies with hopefully some insights for sharing safety technologies with rivals um, today in emerging technologies like AI. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting topic with AI safety itself being very much sort of, uh, I guess, in the early stages of research. And uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We don't really have a sense of like, if there is going to be an AI safety technology like permissive action links. Um, so, uh, but I think the, the, the historical example is substantively important in its own right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, uh, is a pretty good overview. I think of your kind of subject of area and just to wrap up, we always go out doing something else, which is a little bit on who you are outside of your work. Uh, so yeah, what are you into outside of policy and AI and, and stuff? Do you, do you read, do you, I don't know, play guitar? <laughs> what, are you, what sort of things are you into? Um, right now, so right now there's the League of Legends World Championships happening. Oh. So I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of League of Legends um, and esports. So I'm into that. And then, um, one of the things I missed the most during the pandemic was playing pickup basketball. So I've been playing a lot of pickup basketball here. Um, it's mostly running around with undergrads who have limitless <laughs> energy and just trying to keep up with them, but it's uh -huh. been fun. Yeah. That's often people say you need to have some of these, uh, physical exercise hobbies to, uh, main, manage the grind of research I find. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, that was a really interesting interview. Uh, thank you again, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, for making the time. Thanks, Andre, for having me. All righty. And uh, just to recap, again, uh, you can check out the China AI newsletter at chinaai.substack.com. It's free. You can pay if you want to, you know, support the uh, creation of it, but it's it's fully free to subscribe to. And once again, this is a Gradient podcast. Check out our associated magazine at thegradient.com. Pub, and we also have a Substack where this podcast goes out. So that's the gradient.substack. And yeah, if you enjoyed this, please share this, subscribe, and review, and all that. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in to our future episodes. <laughs>